You are listening to the Commerce Insights with Woman podcast, where inspiring industry experts share their experiences and insights with us. We are here to bust the myth that commerce is complex, dull, and difficult. I am your host, Jacinda. Let's make commerce easy and exciting together. Welcome to another episode of the Commerce Insights podcast with Woolman. In this episode, we have Chief Evangelist of Woolman, Mikko Rekola, and a special guest all the way from New York, working as the head of business Sweden over there, Jacob Westerberg, discussing why 2023 is the perfect year to expand to the US as a D2C business. Tune into the episode for best business tips for your 2023 strategy. Great to have someone from all the way from US here. Jacob, could you kindly tell me about your background? How did you eventually end up in D2C space? And what are you working on these days? Absolutely. Uh, I worked for about eight years as a management consultant in the Nordics with a company called Quartz, uh, which was acquired by Bain Company in 2019. And towards the end of my spell at, uh, at Quartz, I started working more and more in the retail space and found that it was something I really liked to do. So not necessarily just on the D2C side, but also with sort of strategy for more traditional retail brands as well. And uh, during my parental leave, when I was still at Quartz in, in 2018, me and my wife co-founded Juniper, which is a D2C premium home essentials brand. Uh, but I went back to uh, to sort of my regular work as a consultant when the parental leave uh, finished. And then in 2020, I, I left to begin a new chapter with Business Sweden, where I'm currently working in the US as head of the New York office. And uh, where I've been part of, of growing that organization from about 25 or so in 2019 up to close to 50 people now in, in 2022. And at Business Sweden, we support mostly Swedish, but also actually Finnish companies and Icelandic companies um, to enter and, and grow in the US market. And, and one of my focus areas there is, is e-commerce and the D2C space. And it's, of course, uh, one of the types of companies that uh, that we sort of support quite a lot. So um in terms of what i'm doing right now i'm just kicking off two projects uh one is with the dtc company and one is for the portfolio company of a, of a private equity company that's sort of in the hardware technology space uh, and they're looking to acquire their way into the us so uh, about half and half in in this scenario in the dtc space and i think that's quite representative of how i spend my time as well oh very interesting if you would like European merchants or brands to follow one American D2C brand, which one would it be and why? And also, what have you learned yourself from this brand? It's, it's always tricky to, to point out just one brand. I think in the US D2C space, there are a lot of interesting personalities uh, that offer a lot of value for free. So I, one of the personalities that I really like to follow is Nick Sharma. He has a uh, newsletter that comes out on Sundays, which I would recommend anyone to follow. And he also runs a podcast together with Moise Ali that, that previously founded Native um, a Deodorant brand, uh, which is also very informative, both in sort of understanding the general retail space in the US, as well as uh, getting some tactical tips for how to run a D2C brand. So that's it's not quite the company, right? But it's it's something to follow. And I think beyond that, I would um, it would be different for different uh, people, I guess, depending on what niche you're in. So 
my wife, for example, is in the sort of bedding or home essentials space. And then I think she's found a lot of inspiration in, in Brooklinen um, and, and lately also, I think, in Buffy, because Buffy has a really, really strong sustainability work. Uh, and I have a friend that's starting another D2C company called uh, called AID, AYD in, in Sweden right now, which is very much like him's and hers in, in the US, so sort of in the in the doctor-backed uh, personalized treatment space. And, and of course, uh, he's looking quite a lot at him, and I'm sure there are others in that space as well. But, but I think generally you need to consider the niche you're in a little bit, and then, and then I can probably point you in the right direction. There's so many great D2C brands like Away and Glossier and Bonobos, Allbirds, um, that I think they're all worth watching uh, in a sense and, and learn from and take inspiration from. I, I really love it. I've been personally working with kind of like many top-level European D2C brands such as like AIM, Singular Society, Acon, and many, many others. Yet I feel things are on another, another scale in the US. How do you feel? Yeah, yeah it's funny actually with AIM and I, I uh, came very close to doing a commercial due diligence with them uh, at one point in my life uh, when I was previously working more uh, towards the private equity sector in, in the Nordics. Uh, we ended up not doing that uh, because they, um, uh, yeah, the PE company backed off, I think, or maybe we were too expensive. I can't quite remember. But um, I, I do agree. It is uh, on another scale in the US. Naturally, I think just the language aspect of scaling a brand in the US makes it easier. You immediately sort of have the possibility to reach out to 300 million consumers, which is different in, Euro in Europe. It's always going to be more difficult when you need to do French and German and something else, uh, especially I think when it comes to the, the customer acquisition side, but also uh, there might be cultural adaptations different for different companies, but, but it does come in. Uh, and I think with that scale that sort of comes a little bit easier in the US, uh, with that comes more money because the companies grow quicker, you get more funding. With more funding and more money comes more talent in a sense. And when you have more talent thinking about a problem, the collective thinking uh, that goes into sort of building US brands, I think that's just way more than the collective thinking that's been going into sort of building European brands. That said, there are, of course, many great European brands, but it's sort of, it is on an under scale in a sense. And there's so many companies in the US on the, on the digital side that, that would be sort of in the top 10 largest if you uh, would have them in Europe with the same or similar revenues. Really interesting. Due to the war in Ukraine and overall unclear market situation, look at what's happening in the UK. It's all such a madness. Quite many Nordic brands are focusing more and more on the US, at least on their plans. What do you think? Is that a reasonable dream? And at what stage should you pursue this kind of a dream? I definitely think it's a reasonable dream. I think one thing that uh, you didn't mention also is that China is probably in a sense looking less attractive than it has in, in probably five or, or 10 years or even, even more maybe. Uh, and when brands can't uh, go to the middle of Europe, it's difficult to go to the UK. China does not feel as attractive as it used to. If you then want to go to a major market, right, the US is, is almost the only opportunity to have, regardless if you're in the e-commerce space, actually, or if you're in sort of another space. And then if you add the language to that so that, uh, that most Europeans can actually operate sort of quite efficiently in the US, uh, while I think the barriers in terms of infrastructure, they're also coming down, right? So it's actually less complicated 
in, in some senses at least, it's less complicated to, to move across the Atlantic now than it was uh, a while back. So I think it's definitely a reasonable dream. Uh, and um, uh, it, it does require quite a lot of thinking, even for, for relatively large direct-to-consumer brands. If we sort of look at the brands in Europe with above um, 50 million euros or so that, that you probably would consider very successful at this point. I think even those brands are actually, uh, I wouldn't say struggling, but they are uh, experiencing usually that there is a bit of an obstacle when they first start looking at the US market. And uh, sometimes they sort of think that it's just going to be like opening up Norway or opening up Finland or Sweden. It's just sort of an, an, another country in a sense. But the US is so big, so vast, uh, and a little bit different here and there, that usually companies come here, they maybe underestimate a little bit how much needs to be prepped and done in advance. And then it sort of takes an extra six months more than they expected to sort of get everything up and running uh, before they're off, so to speak. Awesome. Jacob, could you share us uh, a checklist on what B2C brands should do before opening operation in the operation in the US? Also, is it enough to open like just a Shopify or Shopify Plus store there? Or should you have also a more physical approach? What's your personal view in here? There's quite a bit of prep to be done in advance. I think some of it is actually relatively simple. That it's simple doesn't mean that you can't miss to do it, right? Because, but, but in, in sort of operationally, once you have it on your checklist, it's actually quite simple to do. In terms of just opening a store or uh, opening your website, I think what, what we're seeing most companies do is that they start with their website, potentially even before they've actually really set up the US in a good way just to see if they get some initial sales, some organic sales maybe. And, and then they might start to do some, some ads in the US just to test out the market a little bit. And then if they get a little bit of traction, that's usually when they start saying, okay, next year we're actually going to go into the US. Um, when it comes to the physical side, I'm sure you can, uh, I think it's most of the time advisable to, to go into some physical retail as well. I think we are essentially seeing... Um, a convergence, right, where traditional brands that aren't D2C brands, they want to be more like D2C brands. But also, actually, D2C brands want to be a little bit more like traditional brands because you want to diversify sort of your revenue streams and uh, the, the physical channels do uh, lend some credibility to the digital side as well. You can reach consumers maybe you wouldn't have otherwise and so on. So I think there's, there's definitely that aspect. And then, of course, Amazon comes into play in the US in a completely different way than it does in, in Northern Europe. Uh, every other um, sort of dollar spent on e-commerce in the U.S. is through Amazon. And I think instinctively when you're uh, uh, sort of living in the Nordics or when you're European even, it feels like Amazon is something that could almost destroy your brand. But in the U.S., I think Amazon is essentially like existing. It's just uh, you're on Amazon because people use Amazon as Google. So it's like I would almost compare it to, to like having Google ads in Europe is like being on Amazon in, in the U.S., uh, which is uh, hard to comprehend because the, I, I still, even though I use the website every day, I still don't like Amazon's website. I think it's horrible. And um, and uh, as a sort of a, a brand owner or co-owner, I also actually feel like I don't want to be on Amazon, but I, I probably still would advise almost every company to be on Amazon in the end, at least to some extent in the US. Uh, but to go back to the, the sort of... Uh, overarching question there with a checklist for the US. Um, 
there are of course many things. Um, I think that the first thing you need to consider is uh, either funding or uh, you could have a strong core business right in Europe that could fund your US business for a little while at least. There are a few examples of companies that come to the US and instantly sort of make it work. But I would say that it's much more common that it takes like six to 12 months before you get the US to work, before you actually profitably can acquire customers and, uh, and do what you're doing in Europe. And you need to expect that to some extent and sort of be willing to test, be willing to optimize. And that could cost you money and you need to, to have your resources probably more directed to that than what's actually generating the, the revenue or at least uh, sort of relatively more than you did before. So, um, so some sort of financial cushion is, is a start. Uh, then I think something that you can start thinking about six to 12 months before you uh, are about to enter the US is, does your product need to be adapted in any way? And I'll say that most products do need to be adapted in some way. Either it's sort of the, the labeling or you need to change the, the sizes. And by labeling, I mean sort of warning labels or, or something like that. Uh, it could be language also, of course. Uh, then it's the sizes. Uh, you might actually need to redesign something um you you might need to um uh, if you're selling into canada it's not the us but if you're selling into canada you actually need to have your labels in french also to be able to address the quebec region and and so on and uh, it might also be that you're using centimeters for some reason and you need to move that to inches and, and stuff like that so i mean there are a lot of those things that needs to be considered on the product side uh and if you're not sort of producing a completely new batch for the US, but using your existing inventory to sell into the US, then, then you need to consider all of those things. So I think both of those are essentially before you even start thinking about the US. And then one of the very first things you should do in the US is to set up a local entity in the US. So you need um, a US company. It's, it's very easy to set this up, but US consumers are very prone to want to buy from US companies. It's also very difficult to handle sales tax, which is quite complex in the US uh, with the European entity. So each state in the US, they have different uh, laws and regulations around sales tax. That's super easy, and it's not super easy, but it's relatively easy at least to handle if you have a US entity. Uh, and then you probably need someone to help you with your books in the US. Either you need to hire sort of a, a consultant over Fiverr, or you need to, to find some sort of other consultancy. Uh, we, we have a back office team that also supports companies with that uh, sort of to do to do uh, regular bookkeeping and then sort of keep up with the, the annual reporting and so on that's required for that local entity. Um, then I think you need to expect to dedicate resources to the US. Of course, this depends a little bit on the scale of your company. If you're sort of a two million euro revenue company and have decided to go into the US, I realize you can't you can't put like four people on on entering the US. But if you're a 50 million euro plus company, then you should probably expect to, to put dedicated resources towards the US because you can't expect the exact same ads to work. You need, uh, there, there are just many things in the US that needs to be considered. And all in all, it can't just be part of everyone's regular workday, uh, like when you maybe enter sort of a neighboring country in, in uh, Europe. And I think in the end, most companies actually notice that it takes off for them once they have people on the ground in the US. That doesn't necessarily need to be a big team, but it's sort of one or two people that needs to be in the US and have their entire mind on just running the US market. And, and then, of course, either you're hiring in the US or if you want to send someone over, then you need to look into uh, to visas as well, um, which can also be a, a bit of a process and, and take some time. 
Um, then you have logistics. Uh, there are plenty of 3PL partners in the US, so it's not super complicated, but you also need to think through the supply chain, right? Coming into the US, or you're sending goods from Asia, for example, then there might be reason to have your 3PL on the West Coast, or are they coming from Europe? Then it might be on the East Coast. If you have a low average order value product, you might actually need to have two different warehouses because it doesn't make sense to send things from the East Coast to the West Coast if the customer is paying $25, almost whatever you're you're selling sort of because the margins uh, won't be there. So that's definitely something to consider as well. Um, then it's the the tech stack and, and everything, I guess, uh, connected to the website. So you can use most of the digital tools, right? You're using in, in Europe, but I think there are um, a few additions and this will be different for different companies. But for example, something like Quantcast, which is quite popular in the US D2C space, where you sort of have a, a good view of the, the demographics of the website. <clears throat> Visitors is um, an important aspect in the US. There could be things like what SMS provider you're using, uh, like Clavio has built in SMS, right? For example, if you're already using Clavio, but I would say that most companies in Europe, at least in Sweden, probably aren't using Clavio for SMS in Sweden because it's too expensive. And, and then you need to consider if you're uh, what SMS provider you're using in 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 the US. Um, what else on the tech stack side? Of course, you need to think through sort of the website with payment alternatives and everything like that. I think in in the US, um, people do expect um, more express options. So Amazon Express, PayPal Express. Uh, of course, if you're on Shopify, you're probably using ShopPay, which is very popular in the US, but Personally, I always click the Amazon Express checkout option if that's available. And I think uh, that's very unusual to have natively on your site if you're a European company. So uh, so it's something to consider. Um, then we have customer service, of course. Uh, if, you're, if you're planning to do that, you need to think through the time zone aspects of that and sort of who's handling it. Pricing can be very important. We, we see plenty of brands actually take on sort of slightly different market positions in the US than in Europe. Uh, for example, the shirt maker Eaton in, in Sweden, they have marked up their goods in the US by about 100%. So they are much more of a luxury brand in the US than they are in, in Sweden. Um, Ralph Lauren is the opposite. They're actually selling cheaper in the US than they are in, in Sweden and so on. And you can see plenty of this, uh, that brands actually sort of to some extent choose to take on a different position in a different market by, by adjusting their price level and, and, uh, and maybe some other things, right, to, to live up to that new brand position. Um, yeah, and then we mentioned the sales channels right before. So, so that's, of course, an in, important aspect as well. So I think there are many of these things. And now we haven't even started talking about uh, customer acquisition, advertising, PR, uh, all of that, which is, which I guess is sort of something that you would actually focus a lot on as you get closer to launching in the US. Like all of the things we've mentioned now is, is essentially stuff you need to prepare uh, before you're even even in the US. Thanks, Jacob. That was that was definitely a lot and some really good advice. So thanks to for sharing those with all of our listeners. Um, then after the next topic, so. What have you learned so far while helping Nordic brands either entering the U.S. market or then growing there? Uh, is it an European legend that Swedish brands have better marketing skills than the Finnish or Norwegian brands altogether? 
or is the success thanks to marketing itself or something else? What would be your take? Naturally, I've learned a lot of the basics, right? A lot of what we just talked about with setting up a US entity and handling sales tax and all of that. Like none of that is very complicated, but it's still something you need to learn to some extent. And like for since each company only does it once, there's it's fairly unlikely that the companies build up this expertise to any, to any large extent, right? Um, so that's definitely part of it. But we also do take on the sort of wider full go-to-market strategies. We don't run, for example, ads for companies. We don't do uh, conversion rate optimization uh, on website, even though I, I have a lot of opinions usually, but it's not something we, we necessarily take on professionally. But I think we've learned things um, throughout. Uh, I think in the end, I think that the one thing that's most important for most companies is probably actually project management in a sense. Like consider the US not just another thing, but do sit down with pretty much your entire team sort of from uh, from the financial side to marketing to creative. Think about how you're going to divide the work. Think what the timeline is going to be like. Uh, I think if you have really strong project management, I think those are the companies that actually do best once they once they enter the US. Um, and foresight to some extent. So good project management and also not saying, yeah, we're entering next month, but rather be like, okay, we're entering the US in eight months. What do we need to do until then uh, to do this successfully? I think those are the companies that actually do do really, really well uh, once, they, once they enter the US. And I guess that the second question you had there about if Swedish brands have better marketing than Finnish brands, I don't think I, I don't think I want to touch that topic. Uh, I, I might have opinions, but I'll leave it up to you to, uh, to decide. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you have been previously talking a lot about sustainability. Uh, what's your view on sustainable e-commerce in 2023? I think it's difficult to be a D2C brand in 2023 and not focus on uh, sustainability to some extent uh, or, or to a large extent, probably. But uh, at the same time, I think it's actually grown increasingly more difficult to just have sustainability as your only sort of differentiating factor as a brand. There are brands that do that still, and some do it really well. But I think it's become much more difficult to take on that position. I think most consumers buy a product because they need that product. They want that product to be good or sort of at least relative to what they're paying for that product. They want that product to be good. And then they expect the brand to do uh, sort of to have a, a good grip around sustainability. They expect them to push sort of what materials are they using and so on. So I think all of that has become almost a prerequisite in the D2C space while traditional brands, uh, aren't like i think quite as forced to have that as a prerequisite yet uh, even though they are also sort of moving in that direction and uh, but the dtc brands they're so strong right on the on the communication side and since they're communicating so much with consumers i think having that sustainability aspect is is just very uh, important um but i don't think it's the primary reason people convert at least not for the first purchase but then once they've converted and once they start learning more about the brand, at that point, sustainability might come in more. And I think it might uh, be a positive if you're trying to sort of get your customers to spread positive word of mouth around your brand. Then I think sustainability can be a very important factor as well. Really interesting, Jacob. Um, there have been lots of discussions about this kind of like Nordic minimalistic luxury. At least we have 
we have sort of had discussions on this and, and had like companies that have been interested in, in brands who are doing this, um, which typically offer that they are a bit more sustainable as based in fashion accessoires. They are not pushing you to buy a lot, rather buy a bit less and, and better quality. Do you think this kind of a category even like exists? Uh, do you see value here? And more importantly, do you feel this could be something for the US market? I definitely think it can be something for the U.S. market. Um, it's a little bit broad, right, what what Nordic minimalist luxury could be. Because, I mean, what immediately comes to mind are, are sort of the traditional probably fashion brands like Philippa K or, or Acne or something like that. They're not necessarily D2C brands, but that's sort of where the, where the minimalist luxury uh, on the fashion side, at least in my head, started in, in Sweden. Um, and they, they kind of pioneered that space. And now we're seeing brands like uh, Swedish Asket, for example, which is a, a strong uh, D2C brand. They've been focusing on, on male uh, clothing for a while, but now they've also ventured into to sort of the, the female uh, side. And uh, they're doing really well. And I know they're, they're doing well in the US as well. And then Totem, for example, is another one uh, that was founded by Ellen Kling and her husband, Carl Lindman. They're doing extremely well in the US and, and globally. And at this point, probably Philippa K would want to be Totem rather than the other way around. But I'm sure <laughs> at some point when they found the Totem, they probably wanted to be to be Philippa K. Uh, so I think that there's definitely a space for that in uh, in the US D2C landscape. And I think actually, when I think about it, uh, the US fashion D2C brands, they're actually quite sort of low in a sense on the fashion side of being a fashion brand they're usually very focused on comfortability or, or or sort of how comfortable the clothes are so i think that that's actually in a sense probably an opportunity space for nordic companies to enter the us and now i've only been talking about fashion but it was sort of where my mind went when you said um nordic minimalist but it, it could of course also be on sort of other design brands with interior design or, or something else uh, as well but I, yeah, I definitely think there is room for that in the U.S. market. Lovely. And I would love to add on that list, our customer ATP Atelier that has, was now like credited as, as the top rising Swedish brand and that is now, now going global. So, Jacob, what about uh, the U.S. market as it's so huge and players like Amazon and Walmart are or, or, or the market? Where? Would you focus when you go to a market for the very first time? Would you go directly to the consumer? Would you use these marketplaces? Would you go like omnichannel, hybrid? Have you seen any minor changes since the pandemic? What would you do? I think that um, the the fact that Amazon and Walmart are huge in some way actually uh, gives DTCs a right to exist. I think it actually might be sort of one of the reasons why this is also do so well in, in the US because Amazon and Walmart are essentially the antithesis, right, of a DTC brand. They are uh, faceless, all about convenience. Uh, they have bad customer service, generally speaking, at least maybe not in the Walmart store, but if you think about the online channel and DTC brands are the complete opposite. They're emotional, they're story driven. You get to hear about the people behind the brand. Uh, they provide great content, uh, they they have um, uh, sort of great customer service usually and so on. So I think 
some people just grow tired of the Amazon experience and then they want to find the very sort of the, the other side of that. And the other side of that is actually not shopping from sort of a Ralph Lauren, right? That's a traditional brand that happens to have an e-commerce store, but it's actually going to a direct-to-consumer company that offers sort of more on more of these things that the, the big marketplaces don't offer. Uh, but even so, though, I think the marketplaces offer tremendous value. So I think generally I would suggest that companies at least offer part of their assortment on marketplaces. Walmart is growing a lot, but I would probably still uh, advise brands in the interest of prioritizing to focus in on Amazon, see if Amazon works for them with part of their assortment while offering their full assortment on their own website. If you're a brand that want to uh, occupy a premium part of, of the space, so to speak, then I think that using physical retail is also quite useful. Uh, coming into a Nordstrom or a Bergdorf Goodman or some of these uh, sort of big warehouses that are well known, even though your sales from that channel won't be great, it can still really support sort of the view people will have of your brand and actually help your e-commerce. So, and I think that credibility that you can get from the physical side uh, can be really useful. Uh, then, of course, you can also have a product that's sort of more random, so to speak, where it isn't as obvious to you exactly who your customers in US are. And then even marketplaces like Fair, where you can find uh, sort of tail tail end uh, stores, so to speak, or mom and pop shops uh, that can be matched with tail end brands, that can be really useful as well, uh, depending on what kind of product category you're in. So I think you should definitely have the, the sort of omni-channel view uh, when you enter the US. And uh, what, I, what I most advise brands to consider more probably than they are uh, is Amazon. Because it's it's counterintuitive to brands uh, to to look at Amazon and be like, no, we don't want to be on this platform. It's bad for our brand. But I would say that it's not bad for your brand because if you're spending marketing dollars on Facebook and people like your brand, then they will look for it on Amazon. And if someone else, if your brand is not on Amazon, then someone else will find your uh, brand search terms and they'll sell them the same products on Amazon, and you have just paid for that uh, customer for another company. Really good point. Uh, love it. Hey, Jacob, thanks for this. Any final words today? Thanks a lot for, for having me on and, and for a good discussion. Interesting topic. Uh, I I really hope we can work together with, with some uh, companies in the future. It'd be really fun. Um, but other than that, I think that um, I've, I've probably uh, said my piece and uh, I want to say thanks.